1600, the Italian philosopher and cosmologist Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake. He was accused of having the crank idea that the universe is infinite, and also, by the way, he was accused of denying the divinity of Christ, which was even less popular. Two years earlier, Galileo had written in a private letter to the uh, German astronomer Johannes Kepler that he believed in the Copernican universe. This was ultimately to lead to a great clash with the church, because the church uh, considered that to be an anti-scriptural theory about the universe. Ultimately, Galileo would be tried and condemned to a lifetime of virtual house arrest. In 1604, Kepler himself observed the last supernova that was ever observed in the Milky Way, our galaxy. Supernova is, of course, um, an exploding star. It is a brand new thing that's never seen in the universe. And this also was a very unpopular idea because the scientific orthodoxy up to that point had been that there is nothing new in the sphere of the stars. No new events can happen out there. So Kepler, uh, undaunted by the fact that everyone believed this couldn't happen, went ahead and published his findings. Our decade, 1599 to 1699, was one that was full of rebels. It was the outgrowth of the Renaissance, which was a rebellious period that had already been going on for about a century and a half before we got to our decade. But these rebels were curiously cautious rebels at times. And let me give you some examples. This all um, through the 16th century and the first half of the 17th century is the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, a period of religious wars, religious persecution. Luther and others, as you know, had translated the Bible out of Latin into a number of local languages and urged the common man to read it. Up here you can see one of a number of very popular pamphlets. It's, this one is called A Plain and Easy Table Whereby Any Man May Be Directed How to Read Over the Whole Bible in a Year. Well, the Catholic Church didn't think much of that idea. They had, in fact, forbidden private lay Bible reading. And up until this time, Bible reading and biblical interpretation were monopolies of the educated clergy. The Reformers challenged church authority on that one, and they also challenged years and centuries of tradition. Over many centuries, the church had built up an array of beliefs and practices. Belief in purgatory, prayers for the dead, the seven sacraments, and so forth. The Reformation tried to sweep all of that away because it said none of those things are mentioned in the Bible. Well, the Catholic Church didn't care that they weren't in the Bible. They thought that they were valid anyway, that they had been built up by many centuries invented by many devout people, and that they were valid even though they weren't in the Bible. But the Reformers insisted that religion should be based solely on Scripture. Notice here that there is a basic caution to the position of the Reformers. 
They are not saying, we are doing something completely new, we're sweeping away everything old. They're saying, we are basing our position on something older than your position. <laughs> we are going back to the original, the naked scripture. So we are older and more traditional than you are. Compare this with another challenge to tradition, a legal challenge. In England, a body of laws and precedents had built up over many centuries. It was called the common law. And in this period, the 16th century, the Tudor monarchs tried to sweep away the whole common law and replace it with a streamlined uniform law code. They didn't say, of course, we're sweeping away everything old that you have always revered and believed in. They said, we are going back to something even older than yours. We are going back to Justinian's institutes. So they tried to go back to ancient Rome, to the, um, the law code of ancient Rome. Another example, all across Europe, uh, lay uh, secularly educated humanists had been achieving a number of important uh, positions in government. They were advocating new and more worldly methods of governing. This was an educated meritocracy, and it was starting to edge out the hereditary nobility in a number of government offices. Did the humanists claim that they were creating something entirely new? By now you know what the answer is. No, of course not. They said they learned it all from Aristotle and the Greeks and the Romans and all of the ancient uh, theorists because they didn't want to come right out and say what we are doing is unprecedented. Another example, in English literature, you knew I would get around to this. In English literature, many writers heaped scorn on medieval romance with all of its damsels and dragons and knights in shining armor. This had been, during the Middle Ages, perfectly respectable reading matter and oral matter for storytelling for adults. But the Renaissance demoted this to children's literature and then belittled it because it was for children. Again, in challenging this kind of literature that was built up over centuries, writers didn't claim that they were inventing totally new kinds of literature. Theorists again look back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, Aristotle, Cicero, Horace, and so forth. And they imitated classical models. So the writers of tragedy imitated the Roman Seneca. The writers of comedy imitated the Roman writers Plautus and Terence. Even the most radical of groups in the Renaissance were perfectly capable of saying that they were just following very old precedents. So for example, radical religious groups like the Anabaptists and the Hutterites who began in the 16th century um, and are still with us, and the 16th century had some very radical positions, including economic communism. So they said that they wanted to uh, share all of their goods, pool their resources, and that no person should have more than another person. Uh, did they say this was entirely new? No, they found it in the Bible. And they quoted Acts 2, 44 and 5, where early Christians had pooled their resources. Quote, all that believed had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, some of these claims to a of a return to ancient precedent were not very believable. 
The Tudor monarchs, after all, wanted to return to Justinian's law code, mainly because it helped them create a new kind of court called the Court of Star Chamber, which was very repressive and gave them more power than they ever had before. English writers borrowed many of their plots from medieval literature, the same medieval literature that they were making fun of. And they claimed that they were following Aristotle in observing the classical unities in their plays. But in fact, out of all the 37 plays that Shakespeare wrote, only one of them observes the classical unities of time and place. It happens to be the one that we're all reading, but it's the only one. Playwrights paid lip service to Aristotle's genres, the old ones like comedy and tragedy, but they were quietly inventing new ones, like the English history play. And when Shakespeare's uh, first collected works came out, the histories were put up there as a genre right alongside Aristotle's comedies and tragedies. And nobody said this is brand new exactly, but it was just put in amongst the others. So the question is, why did they do this? Why did all these theologians and lawyers and humanists and playwrights and Anabaptists make claims like this? Why claim that you are returning to something old? Why not just take credit for inventing something new? Why not enjoy being a rebel? Well, for one thing, there were forces out there like autocratic governments and inquisitors with the power and will to crack down on anything threateningly new, as Bruno and Galileo found out to their cost. England's most important early translator of the Bible, William Tyndall, was burned at the stake for his pains. We could look at a theory by the art theorist Ernst Gombrich, who claims that the human brain just naturally has the habit, anytime it encounters something entirely new, of assimilating it to something old, something that they already understood. And he gives an example of some Renaissance German artists who went down to Rome and were painting classical paintings. And the paintings turned out, the buildings turned out to have turrets on them, like northern castles, because that was what the artists were familiar with. But most important of all, I think, this period simply harbored a deep suspicion of anything really new. So the terms innovation and novelty had bad, bad connotations. An archbishop was beheaded for bringing innovations into the church. <laughs> There's a 1595 play in English literature where a character asks, what uncouth novelties bringst thou unto our royal majesty. In 1604, King James of England published a book called A Counterblast to Tobacco, in which he blasted tobacco, which was newly imported during this period, and called it a childish affectation of novelty. So the modern advertising slogans, new, improved, would not have met with any kind of welcome in this period. And, and Elizabethan never would have wanted to venture out to Innovation Park. The word Renaissance, after all, means rebirth. And the whole idea was that it was supposed to be the rebirth of classical Greek and Roman culture. So it was something new, but it really actually was something old. 
That was the theory. But there were a number of people around in this period who knew very well that they were creating or discovering something entirely new and said so aloud. Foremost among them were world travelers and geographers. As Karen Kupperman writes in one of our course books, the one on Jamestown, especially in cases where information from America contradicted the wisdom of the ancients that was taught in the universities, those who had been to America argued that experience trumped academic knowledge. They could begin with the fact that the ancients had had no knowledge of the two vast continents across the ocean. Samuel Purchas, the English compiler of Voyage Chronicles, wrote that despite his admiration for the ancient writers, experience from America required a new attitude toward them. Herein, he said, we bid you farewell. The dashing Girolamo Cardano, an Italian mathematician and gambler who used his mathematics to figure out statistical probabilities in dice rolling, wrote in his autobiography, among the extraordinary circumstances of my life, the first is that I was born in this century in which the whole world became known, whereas the ancients were familiar with but a little more than a third part of it. You can see there on a contemporary map where the new world is almost erupting into the old world. For another science of the new, the science of biology was struggling to be born during this period. And if you think back to what the study of animals had looked like before this, you had books called bestiaries in the Middle Ages, books of beasts. And they contained things like recipes for boiled fox oil as a remedy for gout. Animal physiology was useful mainly as material for moral allegories. So for example, they said that whales ordinarily lie on the top of the ocean pretending to be islands. And when uh, the sailors sail up on a ship, they jump up onto the island to take a little rest, and the whale sounds down to the bottom of the sea, and they're all drowned. And therefore, the whale is an emblem of the devil who is always trying to deceive us. Where did they get this information? <laughs> they got it from authorities, medieval authorities like Albertus Magnus and classical sources such as Aristotle and Pliny. But in 1605, Sir Francis Bacon, who strenuously opposed undue reverence for the past, published The Advancement of Learning, advocating inductive reasoning and laying the basis for empiricism. In, in the Renaissance, some bestiaries were still being published. They had illustrations of animals based on traditional belief, not on direct observation. And this one, I think, was probably not based on direct observation. <laughs> but even in this bestiary, some animals are closely observed, like this lion. And as artists had been scrutinizing bodies and dissecting cadavers to get the musculature right in their paintings, so scientists began basing studies of the human body on anatomical dissection. The revered medical authority had been the Greco-Roman Galen, 2nd century AD. 
the Renaissance Europe still largely accepted his theory that there were two types of blood, venous blood originating in the liver and arterial blood originating in the lungs. And the blood would sort of pour out of your liver and your lungs all down through your body until it got to, you know, your toes, and then it would sort of dissipate. But in 1602, the Englishman William Harvey graduated from the University of Padua and began controlled experiments on animals, which led to his publishing a theory of the circulation of blood with the heart as a pump. Harvey did not bother genuflecting to any classical authority to legitimate his theory. It was based not on authority, but on observation. It was something completely new. Harvey was a supernova. So as we have seen, there were many innovators and challengers of authority and tradition who did legitimate their innovations by claiming that they were actually a return to the old, accepted, <coughs> the traditional. In these days of autocratic government and grand inquisitors, it took courage to advance a new theory or practice, even if you did claim it was really just old and traditional. How much more courageous, then, were the rare innovators who stood up and said, in effect, what I have seen is unprecedented in human history. What I have discovered is completely new. So I'd like to take you back to the quotation from the Renaissance uh, architect Al uh, Alberti that Professor Ciccone put up last week. Because the ancients had an abundance of models to imitate and from which to learn, it was easier for them to master those supreme arts which are so challenging to us today. Consequently, we deserve greater acclaim in view of our lack of tutors and models, <coughs> for we managed to discover arts and sciences hitherto unheard of and unseen. In conclusion, I would say that our decade was a threshold period. <coughs> There's one English couplet that sums up, I think, the whole spirit of the age. Leaving the old, both worlds at once they view, who stand upon the threshold of the new. Thank you.